0: listening to the ESP, the European Skeptics Podcast, an independent weekly show set out to bring you news, interesting topics and interviews with people mostly from Europe, building bridges and breaking down language barriers to show the world how active and awesome the skeptical movement is in the region. This is episode 243. I'm your host, András Pinter, and joining me for the show is my co-host, Onika Harrison. See ya! Hello. Ah, oh, so unfortunately Pontus is not joining us today he's otherwise occupied but Annika and I are here to inform and entertain our listeners at some point we'll be joined by one of the Belgian skeptics as well who is currently being sued over criticism they express towards uh someone never mind <laughs> <laughs> over his practicing some highly questionable stuff but for now there's just the two of us so how are you doing Annika
1: yeah I'm actually doing good we do have some uh raising rising numbers in in uh germany but okay. um apart from that i'm doing good
0: okay how are you <laughs> how was my- oh, I'm, I'm okay thanks i i've still so far i've still managed to avoid uh getting infected as far as i know at least that's what i hope for but here in hungary we are getting the worst part of it so far so since the beginning of the the pandemic the number of daily new cases has never been so high yeah so the other day uh, there were more than a 1, thousand 1300 people registered as, as, as new cases wow so yeah. Now, the daily death, death count is uh, around a dozen, so and it we, we will probably rise as mm. well. So, uh, yeah, we are in a bad situation, mm-hmm. and we are having a terrible government who is not on top of things. So, I'm not very optimistic about the, the near future, at least when it comes to the pandemic. So, yeah. so uh, we definitely need something that is a uh, reason for optimism. Do, do you have something to, to, to mention on that realm?
1: Yes, definitely. Okay. Because Go ahead. <laughs> the um, <laughs> nominations for the Occam Awards are now open. What are those? Oh yeah, we would Occam Awards. I, I don't oh. know. It's just like <laughs> the Skeptic, the magazine, awards the Occam Award. <laughs> yeah. For outstanding um, skeptical activity and promotion of critical thinking. Yeah. And also the Rusty Razor Award for people who have harmed other people by promoting pseudoscience and i don't know there's there's somebody or some thing that just received an occam award in 2017 at. i can't really remember mm, what it was wait a minute
0: wait a minute i remember <laughs> i remember three making complete fool of themselves on the stage uh, <laughs> accepting that award. I think that was us. <laughs> <laughs> Yelena Pontes and myself. But it was a it was good fun. And it, it was, we were so happy. I cannot tell you how happy we were when we got the, the 2017 Best Podcast Award on the Occam ceremony. At QED, that was QED. That yes. was oh, that was so much fun. QED is amazing. I'm not sure if uh, they are. Planning to hold the actual award ceremony at QED again next year, probably. But uh, that would be nice. Yeah. Yeah.
1: But nominations are definitely open now
0: until the thirty-first of October. That is.
1: Yeah, <laughs> we put the link to that in the show notes, of course. Mm-hmm. But what you can also do is vote for a person who deserves the golden tinfoil hat the most. And Ooh, what is that? The golden tinfoil hat is a is a German or like uh, more like German-speaking prize. You can vote in different categories like conspiracy myth, media, medicine, politics. It's mostly German-based, but... Donald Trump is also one of the nominees so <laughs> <laughs>
0: okay. it
1: might be fun to,
0: to vote he could be nominated for the Rusty Rusty Razor as well exactly <laughs> yeah
1: yes definitely and yeah we put the link to that in the show notes as well
0: <laughs> or we could do, uh, nominate uh, the guy who sued Patrick and his friend as well for the Rusty Razor
1: yeah definitely
0: why not but don't forget there's uh, the Ockham Award for positive acknowledgements as well so I know that we we don't necessarily qualify now because we don't do that kind of sceptical outreach. We're basically mostly preaching for the choir, but it's not like preaching. It's 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 more like a, um, a hub of information and uh, bringing people together. That's what we try to do. If you think that is worth a prize, then feel free to nominate us as well. <laughs> but since uh, we're here to provide you with the most important goings on in the sceptical Community and uh, in skeptical activism across Europe. Let us start by mentioning the online conference that the Dutch skeptical organization Stichting Skepsis is throwing on the 31st of October, the day that is the last day for the nominations of the Occam Awards. <laughs> uh, coincidence? I think not. Coincidence? I think not. <laughs> and now you can be nominated for the Timfoil <laughs> Tim Foy- Hat Hat Award. <laughs> So their annual conference has been running since 2001, which is quite an achievement. And this is the first time it has to happen without participants being in the same room, actually, which must be... A uh, bit of a nuisance. It's sad. To be honest, it is the sad reality we all have to face all around the world, unfortunately, thanks to COVID-19. Thanks, COVID-19. Um, the organisers had conducted a survey among their followers and donors to uh, trying to find out who the speakers were, whom they fancied the most. So a full day of talks and panel discussions is now on offer after a quick registration, featuring people who have mostly been involved in uh, some of those um, conferences among the speakers are two of our friends as well katherine uh, de jong who's appeared on this show on several occasions and is also on the board of exo and um, also the blogger papen von app whom we also interviewed on episode 125 that long ago the link to the program will be of course provided on the show notes So check it out. And if you understand Dutch, then first of all, good for you. (laughs) But secondly, you'll be most likely to have a wonderful time. But I just realized, actually, that last entry of the program is a conversation involving Massimo Piliucci. So there might be something for those who only understand English. Uh, For those of you who don't know who he is, Massimo Pagliucci, the man is an Italian-American professor of philosophy who makes a whole lot of sense whenever he speaks about science, pseudoscience, religion, or anything really. I love listening to the guy. Anyway, check it out and enjoy the online conference. Definitely. Stichting Skepsis. We, we've we talked about the Dutch Skeptics. Let's uh, go and uh, talk about something that's been going on in Belgium. And I think before we turn towards the regular segments of the show, it's time to find out about a deeply disturbing recent development. And to tell us everything you can about it, here with us is Patrick Vermeulen, who's one of the guys being sued for speaking up against... Well, you know, the thing that a duck does. But, yeah, that. <laughs> Patrick, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you, very much. Uh We found out not too long ago that two of you from Belgium are now in legal trouble for uh, speaking your minds about things we all feel very strongly against, actually, in the skeptical community. So I understand there might be things you cannot say at the moment indeed that's right but could you please walk us through the, the situation what actually happened and where do things stand at the moment
2: okay uh, a few years ago um, we had uh, at, at the belgian skeptic that's the belgian skeptic organization mm-hmm. we we gave a prize to a company who uh, tried to uh, give uh, advice on human resources matters so personal development etc through uh, the skull feeding the skull or the form of the skull and The face, etc., and the hairdo. It's like a phrenology based thing, indeed. Indeed, <laughs> partially uh, phrenology based, partially other stuff. Okay, and we gave that okay. uh, company uh, a, a price, a negative price. We call that uh, the pit, the skeptic pit, so that you can forget about those people. Uh, and at the same moment, about at the same moment, there was a publication in a Belgian newspaper about a guy who um, has been uh, uh, doing strange stuff like having people walking barefoot over a uh, uh, hot coal, so burning coal, and he uh, claimed that it was uh, because of uh, the, his uh, psychological stuff so that he made people, uh, t- he motivated people to do that. And um, he was in one of the Belgian newspapers because he had become very rich and very successful towards uh, small enterprises and independent uh, workers. And um, there were several people criticizing um, that, that company and that guy. So me and my colleague, we decided to write an article about the nonsense that is so uh, often met in, in human resources. So we decided to write an article on both companies, the one with the phrenology and the one with the hot coal and who worked with neuro-linguistic programming, etc. And we also analyzed how they lured people in. So this one guy, he gives free seminars and he acts a little bit like these uh, this, uh, typical preachers or I just uh, watched the movie called Compreneur instead of Entrepreneur, so uh, Conman. Uh-huh. And uh, he really pretty much uh, works like that. So he invites people to free seminars, has them sharing, has them answering yes, Closes the door at the end, has people sign up at the end. so And about 20% of the people then sign up to a very expensive course, five-day course, costing between 8,000 and 10,000 euros. And he has, um, he has big audiences varying between 100 and a couple of hundreds. Oh, God. Yeah, we decided <laughs> to write an article for the Belgian magazine. Yeah. So it was a limited number of copies. But anyway, he uh, decided to sue us. On the day before Christmas, we got this uh, person coming over. Said you are being sued, and he claimed four hundred thousand euros what? because he said he lost that amount of money during two months because of our article.
1: That's a nice present. <laughs> yeah, it
2: was a it was a nice present. So the nerve on that person! Oh my god! In our opinion, is out for the chilling effect. So last year, it came before the Belgian court, first instance. And it was ruled on December 6th that we entirely won the court settlement. Mm -hmm. But he immediately announced that he was going to go to appeal, uh, which he then he waited for another four months. So he asked us, no, you don't want to send me the the court um, statement. I'm going to appeal. So wait a little bit. So we had to ask him himself. And finally, we had to send him the court's ruling and then he waited another month, so that he used every time limit, and then he went to appeal, so... um, We waited until the very last minute. We waited until the very last minute, and then he asked three judges in appeal, and he asked three rounds of conclusions. So, which is um, yeah, getting the cost uh, through the roof, of course.
0: So, this is basically a classic example of a slap lawsuit. Perfect example of that.
2: Indeed. Uh, we think so, too. That's what we tried to tell the judges. And uh, it, it had no effect whatsoever. Uh, well, the judge of first instance did not give us the, uh, you know, he claimed 400,000 euros. And we said, look, this is a slap procedures, So, it's out for the chilling effect. So, we asked uh, 10% of what he asked us so 40,000 euros but the judge said no but we asked us 40,000 euros because so far it had already cost us more than that amount so in first instance we had to pay 46,000 euros to the lawyers because basically they had to do all of our work over all of the research we did we had to present all of the research to the lawyers and to the courts so it was it was a file of about half a meter thick. Yeah. So that's wow. why it's so expensive because our lawyers are not that expensive. They charge us 150 euro per hour. But, you know, if they have to put in so many hours, then yeah, it still gets though, uh, gets higher. Yeah. Oh. So
1: how can we help you? Oh, uh,
2: <laughs> I, I think if the um, skeptic community already provides us with the moral support, that's a great thing. But of course, there's the financial issue. So that's why the Belgian skeptics have set up a fundraiser Mm-hmm. And so um, we would like to appeal to the community like Brit Hermes did in the past. Maybe you know that, that the Australian Skeptics Organized. It. Yeah, that was a very successful thing. Yeah, very successful. So we hope to... Um, have a fundraiser that is uh, as successful as that one to be able to defend ourselves without uh, us having uh, a lot of personal costs, apart from the stress and the time it costs us, of course. It's very time consuming and very stressing. It will only be November next year that uh,
0: hearing and appeal will take place. This is terrible on so many different levels. I mean, yeah, there is the financial part. There is a the stress level that it comes with. And of course, your time and energy. I mean, you do all of this in your free time. You, you wrote that article in your free time. Mm-hmm. And that means that True. time and energy that you usually put into educating the public, instead of that, you are fighting a filthy rich guy mm-hmm. who's got filthy rich by just conning people suing you and spending your time uh, with a court case that shouldn't have happened in the first place. Mm -hmm. So I think what you said about both the moral and the financial support being necessary, I think this is why those are both necessary. We need to talk about this all over Europe. Uh, we We were
2: still very prudent in the article because we didn't say he cheated people or he was cunning. So we gave the facts and indeed we sometimes Used strong words like uh, it looks like one charlatan is, is, is inspiring another charlatan because he was inspired by an American guru who did uh, approximately the same, Tony Robbins. I don't know whether you heard about him. Yeah. And, yeah, yeah. Um, but, so I have to watch out what I say. So these are your words. Yes. But um, <laughs> That's I hope right. the judge uh, follows us uh, like, or, or rules like the first judge did, uh, saying, look, there's freedom of opinion, yeah, they're based themselves on facts. Uh, they did a thorough job, so uh, you should you should be able to stand it because you claim to be a very well-known person. Mm-hmm. You have television shows, etc. So you should be able to stand it. Yeah. But I, I think what, what he surely is managing to do now is to block the article because Skep now has withdrawn the article mm-hmm. just to avoid or, or I mean not put it publicly on their website. Uh, just uh, waiting for the court's ruling mm-hmm. but that's another three years that he can go on without being criticized huh? yeah.
1: yeah and i think in the skeptic movement it's really important to show uh, solidarity with uh, with you in that regard because this is to pretty much um, shut critics up
2: indeed,
0: indeed. <laughs> yeah and exactly yeah that's what a slab lawsuit is all about yeah yeah yeah,
2: yeah. yeah. and because and these guys is, is making claims like uh, you can triple your your profit margin etc so he's promising really good to those people, <laughs> and, and meanwhile, he can go on. Huh? And
0: so far, the legal costs that you had so far, did you have to take care of it yourselves? I mean, you and uh, your colleague, Bart van der Ven. Well, uh, so far, Skep made advanced payments.
2: So the um, okay. uh, the board decided to put in €20,000 wow. and to uh, to organize a fundraiser. But The fundraiser so far is, is short, so we are okay. €8,000. Sure, that we should have to pay already now, but then our costs for the court of appeal are not yet covered, so we are facing,
0: yeah, you have no idea how long that it would
2: Maybe like 20,000 euros each. uh, If and if we win, of course, yes, because you know, if you win, if you win it, we only get back 8,400 euros for the two court rulings, so um. in Belgium, you don't get back a lot. So we will try again to get uh, 40,000 euros from it. That, of course, will then go to, to SCAP mm-hmm. But um, we're not sure that the court of appeal will follow our reasoning that it's costing us extra um, stress and money and effort. Okay. We hope they will follow us. But in Belgium, courts don't often follow that uh, kind
0: of reasoning. Okay. So for slap suits... So they may actually work, these lawsuits. They, yeah. they do work. Yeah. Because of this. Or, yeah, yeah, sure. It, so this is why we should stick together.
2: Because, you know, I, I published a book and I was planning to publish it in the US. I already had 1,250 copies shipped to the US. Mm-hmm. But I'm, I'm going to withdraw from the US. Because it, if, if a US lawyer, you have to pay like 500 US dollars per hour, it, it simply would ruin me. So um, okay. we talked it over with my family and, and my lawyer. And we decided it's best to to stop the book so i'm currently in the process of withdrawing all my books from amazon usa okay so it does have a chilling effect you know yes
0: I absolutely see that yeah. and that is not only sad but it's outrageous mm-hmm. that this happens but your book is still available here in Europe isn't it
2: yeah I, I decided to to leave it in Europe so this
0: is this is my book tell us tell us something about your book I started uh, writing a, a first book
2: in 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 Dutch uh, in uh, 2005 2006 so basically I started reading about Different models in in psychology and human resources, mm-hmm. and I discovered a lot of, of stuff was 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 really nonsense. Like of course the well known neurolinguistic programming or NLP, oh, yeah. but also yeah, the yeah, Myers Briggs yeah. type indicator, the enneagram, etc. So these are the classic myths. So in my book I evaluate uh, 25 myths, uh, but there are also some some things that are partial truths. So positive psychology, for example, is a near myth. There's a lot of bad research, a lot of uh, claims that are, are false, etc. Even mindfulness is, is something you can have doubts about. Uh, and then in a final chapter, also wrote about 15 provisional truths uh, about evolution and psychology, about interpersonal circumplex, about the effect of goal setting, etc. So I basically tried to write a one-stop book for human resources people, so that they could also uh, shed a critical eye on, on what's going on in new resources. Mm-hmm. So that, that is probably pretty useful. It's a 1160-page book. Okay. It took four and a half years to write it, and there's a lot, uh, like uh, 15 years of reading. Uh... So I must say I enjoyed myself because there were stuff that I didn't know. Maybe uh, to tell you one small anecdote. There's a, uh, a very popular model called DISC, yeah. which is from William Moulton Marston, and I discovered he actually abandoned psychology, and he became the person who drew the comic Wonder Woman. Wow. And okay. Yes, indeed. <laughs> so, he also contributed to the lie detector, and actually, the, the lasso uh, uh, of uh, Wonder Woman was the lasso of truth. So that was the link with the lie detector ah okay yes but this this model was very very sexually oriented so mm-hmm. it's very strange that this is popular in companies you know and in organizations
0: yeah yes. yeah, yeah all right so this is uh, then highly I recommended uh, to everyone uh, can it be used as uh, some kind of a handbook
2: it is a handbook yes it's meant as a as a handbook yes Okay.
1: can you maybe give us the title again
2: yeah it's it's called a skeptics HR dictionary and there's also a, I created a website where there are four sample chapters that everybody can consult for free yeah. so it's um yeah the same name uh, in one word so www.eskepticshrdictionary.com and there you can find uh, the book
0: yeah but of course uh, we will put it on the show notes as well so uh, everyone okay uh, following the uh, the show will be able to look it up all right so we will spread the word and uh, we will try to convince as many people as possible, both here on the, on the podcast and as members of our organizations.
2: That's great news. Thank you for the support.
0: And we wish you all the best. Thank you. And uh, be strong. Okay. Take care. And uh, hope we can all help you in our own ways.
2: It's only another year.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, Patrick Vermeeren, thank you very much. And uh, thank you. Hope the next time that we meet is under much better circumstances.
2: Okay. Thank you
0: very much. <laughs> Take care. <laughs> bye bye. Bye bye. Bye. All right. Wow. I feel very, very strongly about this, that we need to stick together. We need to make a stand as skeptics, cross borders, because we are all in this together. Because pseudoscience doesn't really recognize borders either. So it crosses the borders, it gets translated into different languages, and uh, that's how it happens, that bullshit spreads. So we need to stop them. And we need not shy away from criticizing Con artists and uh, and scammers and and people who make a living out of uh, bullshitting people. Definitely. All right. So time to move on and run the actual show. Uh, first, Onika, why don't you tell us about something that happened this week in history that holds some relevance to skepticism?
1: We'll find out.
0: <laughs> okay.
1: Yeah. So on the 9th of October... 768, Charlemagne was crowned as king, together with his brother Calamon I. (laughs) Oh yeah. That's of course not to be confused with his coronation as emperor on the 25th of December 800, Mm -hmm. so he was crowned king first, then emperor. And Charlemagne is somebody who united Western and Central Europe and was the first emperor to rule from Western Europe since the fall of the Western Roman Empire. But what has that do to, with uh, skepticism, you might ask?
0: <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: well, according to Herbert Illich, who is a German publicist, publisher and critic of chronology, it didn't happen.
0: <laughs> okay, what do we mean by critic of chronology?
1: Yeah, <laughs> <but> <laughs> he criticizes um, yeah, history, or like that history actually happened. And he claims that three ten- centuries of the Middle Ages have been fabricated. He says... The year 614 A.D. was followed by the year 911.
0: Hmm. Okay.
1: That's it. He says that's the case because there's a scarcity of archaeological evidence and uh, there's like Roman or Romanesque architecture in the 10th uh, century of Europe. And he said that can't be because then the Romans might have been closer or had to have been closer to the Middle Ages to have left architecture there.
0: That's a very weak argument. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and he also says there are a lot of like a calendar reform inconsistencies, but yeah, let's let's just think about like the things we wouldn't have if that would be the case.
0: I know of one at least.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Of course, yeah. It's like we wouldn't have Charlemagne. In fact, we wouldn't have any Carolingians, none of them before or after. Of course. There wouldn't be the connection between church and the ruler that that um, started in the beginning of the Middle Ages. No uh, Second Council of uh, Nike. No Vikings in Dublin or Paris. <laughs> <laughs> okay. No Discovery of Greenland. No arpad dynasty in Hungary. No Magyars in in today's Hungary, so sorry, András, your country doesn't exist.
0: <laughs> yeah, well, since according to historians, the year that Hungarians actually started occupying the Carpathian um, Basin, that we, where we live now, uh, happened around eight ninety five, eight ninety six. So that's right in that period. So yeah. it didn't happen. Sorry, but as far doesn't as I just- know, he actually <laughs> answered that criticism at some point, and he wrote a second book that was called Hungarians in the made-up uh, Middle Ages, or something like that, yeah. so, <laughs> so that, but still ridiculous. It's,
1: it's very interesting, and the thing is, we can pretty much easily say why this is seen as a conspiracy theory, and here's the answer to why this is, uh, has something to do with uh, scepticism. The first thing is like, why? Why would somebody invent 300 years of history? why
0: Mm -hmm. yeah why
1: (laughs) and even like build palaces for that Mm -hmm. to just like support your your conspiracy (laughs) just like why then what we can also say is that ancient astronomy is in accordance to mentions of stars during that time so can actually prove that these three centuries actually happened another proof of that is dendrochronology do you know what dendrochronology is
0: it's chronology based on tree rings yes
1: Mm-hmm. and there are trees that are old enough to prove that these th- three centuries actually happened and where we can also say like this is pretty much when it uh like started growing and stuff and this can't be really influenced <laughs> then also Charlemagne himself is also an argument for uh, for the three centuries that happened because he influenced so much of Europe and around that the rest of Europe would have needed to fabricate like parallelly because he influenced the Vatican, the Byzantine Empire, the, Anglo- uh, the Anglo-Saxon England. They had contact with the Islamic expansion, and with that, even the Tang dynasty of China. Yeah. So there's a whole lot of, of ground to be covered. <laughs>
0: <laughs> this is the problem. So it's um, a historical chronology. is not based on one thing. It's based on an interwoven set of many, many different things that are put together. So it's like a massive jigsaw puzzle that the different pieces stick together based on how well they're formed. And the, the other thing, the other argument that, that can be made is that imagine 300 years of history being made up completely. That would have required such a great number of documents fabricated and counterfeited, which did happen. I mean, it wasn't unheard of in the Middle Ages that people forged completely false documents that's a thing but we know about them and making that all up and keeping it a secret successfully for that long up until this guy comes along and debunks the whole thing it would have required such a great number of people and so much effort that it is a much more likely scenario that all of it actually happened than that all of it was Basically made up, so it's like sending people on the moon. Sending people on the moon is a much easier task than not sending people on the on the moon, making it all up and then keeping it a secret. (laughs) (laughs) It's like no,
1: yeah, exactly. (laughs) And there's like there are a lot of archaeological procedures that can't be fooled. That all would need to like the whole the whole field of archaeology would need to be in hand with this conspiracy. To exactly. Actually, yeah. uh, like like radiocarbon dating, you can't really forge that that well. Like if 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 you have 10 findings that all say the same, then the whole field would need to be lying <laughs> in case for this to be true. So
0: Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. and the aftermath of Charlemagne's rule. His grandsons were the ones who divided the empire that he built into three different parts, two of which became later very important kingdoms or not necessarily kingdoms because the western frank empire that became later the kingdom of france and the eastern part became the predecessor of the holy roman empire yeah so it's like what the fuck are you talking about (laughs) man yeah and
1: it's like Charlemagne is still important for for france and germany as of today
0: yeah 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 i mean that is not necessarily um, a strong enough argument for Charlemagne, because God and and Jesus is very important to billions of people (laughs) (laughs) up until today, but but still, still, I think historical chronology is not something that you can easily dismiss. I I mean, not that easily. And uh, actually, I read the book, and it was full of very arbitrarily. Compiled pieces of documents that he used as evidence, but he was very careful to use mentioned documents as evidence that were impossible for anyone to check. Yeah, like yeah, the documents stored in this remote nunnery abbey <laughs> somewhere in the middle of eastern France, where no one will ever go and check. Yeah, so he was very careful to use all that kind of evidence <laughs> so fun times
1: <laughs> yeah so that's that's what happened this week in skepticism <laughs> i have to say
0: yeah the coronation of long way
1: back okay. but uh, still interesting
0: <laughs> it is indeed so thank you very much annika you're welcome <laughs> and uh now that pontus cannot be here the pope can also have a week off
1: yeah as well i think from- the pope is probably moping because he can't be poked today
0: Sorry, Pope. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but at least this means he's this is his week off from worrying about getting poked. Yes. Or it could be what you said and, and that he's very sad about it. <laughs> I don't know how much he enjoys being poked, but uh, let's not get into no. that. <laughs> but I have a surprising announcement to make. This week, we present you the first regular episode since the beginning of the pandemic that has nothing to do with COVID-19. Woo! <laughs> <laughs> so I think we all agree there we need to have a break from the topic from time to time. So this is it.
1: I mean, we already mentioned it. We will mention it again, but we won't have that much of...
0: <laughs> but the news items and nothing, they don't have anything to do with COVID-19. We won't be covering COVID-19 related news as of today. Yes. So this is that moment of break from the topic, people. Uh, so let's find out what else has happened in the last two weeks since our last regular episode that we thought was worth mentioning all right i i don't think it comes as a surprise that uh the bbc and sir david attenborough have done a great job educating humanity about the issues of climate change and the extinction of species and all that stuff But according to some, the latest among their works is so radically open about the topic that it might even be counterproductive or at least it is surprising based on the style that the guy has always um, presented the shows. Unfortunately, the show called Extinction the Facts is currently available only on BBC iPlayer. Mm. And that means it's for those of you lucky bastards who either live in the UK or use a VPN service and have a TV license as well for the, yep. for the BBC.
1: <laughs> just ordered myself to not have that. <laughs>
0: uh, yes, that's right. Uh, why the Beeb doesn't make content like this available to all humanity completely escapes me, but uh, it's their policy. I don't know. Anyhow, no matter if you've seen that particular show, the facts are available for everyone to see and they show a massive rate of species dying out on our planet scientifically speaking this is something to appreciate after all the current mass extinction is the only global phenomenon of its kind that we know the exact causes of yeah right yeah it's us all the other uh, historical um, mass extinctions in the history of earth they are a mystery to at, at least to some extent yeah we don't know everything about them but this one is different. It's definitely us hunting and farming species, taking down whole forests, overfishing seas and polluting them, destroying habitats, and the list goes on and on and on. So from an ethical point of view, of course, this is highly depressing. Definitely. But uh, when a crisis <laughs> is on, or rather when it reaches the level of public discourse, when it reaches the attention of the public, there are always those who deny the very existence of the crisis, right? Of course. With everything, <laughs> yeah. Think about global warming. Think about the pandemic, and now the latest of these mo- movements has become that of extinction denial. Of course, there are different levels here too. There are those the mental ones, I call them, who who just outright deny there to be anything like extinctions. They say that it's not happening. That's silly. But what's more concerning is the sophisticated kind of denials. I mean, it's always the more concerning uh, kind in every topic. And back in August, a paper was published in Nature by authors from the UK, the US, Singapore, Italy, Brazil and Portugal that analysed this newly emerging problem. They categorised the denialist attitudes into three distinct groups, based on what the techniques and arguments they used were. So the first category was literal denier. It tries to put the situation into a different context by saying it used to be a problem of historic and prehistoric times, but we've passed that long ago so no problem anymore. So they basically are very close to the, the mental ones that I, I called them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the second category is the interpretive denial, when the argument is that because reaching a certain level of economic and social development usually brings about the decrease in the pressure of the on the environment, the problem will magically solve itself once we've got everybody above that uh, economic level. So, you know, magically solve itself, the problem. Uh, We've we've heard that argument and look where the guy is now Mm -hmm. who who said that very loudly. (laughs) The third category called implicatory denial claims that technological advances will solve the issues by themselves. I mean, it's very similar to the uh, former one.
1: It's Jurassic Park, isn't it? (laughs) Yeah, it's
0: like with technology, we can overcome all that problem and we can solve it all. Yes and no, because all of these arguments have teeny tiny seeds of truth in them. But it's hard to go into a full on attack against them if you want to stick to facts. But the authors bring up a list of recommendations for conservation science communicators that is based on the so-called fish-off stages. Have you heard of them? Mm,
1: No, I don't think I have.
0: (laughs) Okay, so it's a list of recommendations that I think all science communicators should take to heart. So, first of all, get the numbers right. Or we can say, get the facts right. Always. Be scientifically sound and rigorous when gathering findings and making projections. I think that is crucial to every kind of science communication. Secondly, disseminate those numbers in every way you can to everyone who needs to hear them. Politicians, policymakers, other stakeholders, everyone. Make sure the numbers are well explained and not just lying there. If you throw out all the numbers, uh, most of the people will have no idea what to do with the numbers. And the moment they start interpreting the numbers their way, that's where the problem starts. Mm -hmm. That's where people start drawing very silly conclusions if you're not making them for them it's not necessarily good the argument could be made that uh, if you uh, pre-digest all of it for your audience that's a different issue but never mind make sure the numbers are well explained and not just lying there apply a systematic approach and make sure it makes it through that kind of approach so they should see the connections between the facts as well otherwise they will not understand the whole system and and, for example, if you talk about environmental issues without explaining the systematic build-up of how nature works, it will not get you anywhere. And uh, refer back to old acceptance cases of risks communicated by science. Think about CFCs. Think about DDT, right? Or the hunting of whales. They have all been banned because the public started understanding the issue and policymakers had to go with the public opinion Mm -hmm. okay then work out and show stakeholders why it is in their interest that we all act that's what i was talking about when i said that policymakers follow the public opinion Mm -hmm. but most importantly treat everyone nicely and with respect even when you strongly disagree you don't want to uh, alienate anyone you want to convince and try to be inclusive when proposing solutions we are all in this together and this is exactly why the UN Biodiversity Summit on the 30th of September should have achieved something. But it was basically a list of pre-recorded addresses by country leaders without making any commitments. Mm. They were just <laughs> parading there online. And even when they did make commitments back in 2011, when they outlined the goals the the world was to achieve by the end of 2020, they did not hold themselves to those commitments. So... Pff, it basically was a big balloon ready to pop so while there are estimates of about a million species being on the verge of extinction and 75 percent of the earth's land surface and 66 percent of its waters have been significantly altered by human activities the world is waiting for 2021 when the next summit is to happen as it has been postponed because of the pandemic And that's only one of the crucial issues we currently need to fix or find a solution for. Also, one more on the list of things hindered by denial, as well as the lack of action. So think about it people
1: definitely yeah.
0: extinction is real
1: extinction is happening and i think what uh you just said like the list of things of like um with the numbers and everything that reminded me a bit of uh what kara santa maria sometimes says who's one of my favorite uh, science communicators and she says likewise uh, yeah <laughs> don't underestimate your audience's intelligence but keep in mind that their vocabulary might differ from yours. So um and that's something that I always try to keep in mind. And that's something that a science communicator from Germany also does really well. (laughs) Okay. And um why will I well why would I mention that? That is because um she just received the German Federal Cross of Merit. Nice. The Bundesverdienstkreuz. (laughs) Okay. And um it got awarded on October the first Fifteen people received the cross, and among them uh, was this uh, science communicator, but also, for example, the district administrator of Heinsberg called Stefan Pusch, who was the pretty much the pioneer in Germany for uh, tackling COVID from the um, yeah ground level. Of like, the dis- district administrator is something like a mayor, but a bit higher. Okay. And um, Heinsberg was the first big county hit by COVID-19. In Germany. Okay. And he did a marvelous job uh, on the ground, <laughs> talking to people, informing and everything. Yeah, yeah. The virologist Christian Drosten also got the cross for his work on informing about COVID. Mm-hmm. That's why I said, like, sorry, we will mention COVID. <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: And the aforementioned science communicator and chemist called Mighty Nyen Kim. And she got it for promoting critical thinking and Mm. doing very good, marvelous videos about COVID and also countless other topics Mm -hmm. um, in a very interesting and... um, charming way
0: (laughs) it's not it's not the first time that we hear about her
1: definitely yeah yeah martin mora i think mentioned her right
0: yeah probably and i think there was oh and she is getting the heinz oberhumer award as well exactly which the the award ceremony is taking place in november as as far as i remember Mm -hmm. i'm not sure about that but yeah yeah so she is getting noticed and she's getting recognized which is very good
1: yeah but also well deserved because yeah yeah, yeah. she's doing a great job i have to say because like i think that's something that martin also said she is not underestimating the intelligence of the audience Mm -hmm. she's explaining it very well but she's She's not dumbing it down.
0: (laughs) Okay, that's pretty good. I think it's important for you, for all communicators, not only science communicators. I've noticed that while I work as a tour guide, something I haven't done for a while, but that's a similar thing as well. You want to educate your audience, but uh, it's not a bunch of school kids. You are talking to adults and uh, you don't know how much they know about the topic that you, you want to explain to them. But you you have to assume that they don't know much in order for you to be understood. Because otherwise, if you assume that they know too much, a lot of them will not be able to follow you, right? But the moment you start communicating as if they were all stupid idiots who who, who have no previous knowledge whatsoever about anything, then you get condescending. And that will put them off. Yeah. And you really don't want that. I do some science communication myself. It is the same with science communication yeah good 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 oh it's such a great thing to see that a science communicator gets such a high yeah, recognition definitely because it's quite it's quite high isn't it yeah the German it's, it's, order of it's merit.
1: very prestigious in germany it's um is
0: it like one of the one of the highest
1: it's like a uh, order of the garter in, in britain or something like that. It's just pretty pretty oh, okay. high like i think it's one of the highest orders you can actually um, receive in wow. germany
0: <laughs> well that's that's pretty good it is okay well done and congratulations yep. well
1: done
0: <laughs> yeah well um there is some guy who doesn't really get any recognitions of the positive kind and i think it's very understandable why that is we mentioned the name of Paolo macchiarini many times on this show already the swiss-born italian thoracic surgeon should uh, probably be listed among well the greatest frauds of medical history likely responsible for the death of around 20 people across several different countries. He had been conducting trachea transplants between uh, 2008 and 2014, almost all of which resulted in painful death after the operations, but only Italian and Swedish prosecutors even bothered to deal with uh, these cases. Three years ago, the Swedish Public Prosecutor's Office conducted a lengthy investigation that rippled through the scientific institution of the highest prestige in the country, I mean in Sweden, the Karolinska Institute as well. And eventually, although he has been classified as negligent, all criminal charges against Macchiarini were dropped, which resulted in a public outcry, at least from the the research communities and um, the scientific community all around the world, to be honest. In 2019, an Italian court found him guilty of abuse and forging documents which was completely independent from the trachea t- transplant things. And it, they sentenced him to 16 months in prison. But he's currently in parole. So basically, he's got away with everything. But the good news is that it might be about to change. The Swedish Prosecution Authority announced on the 29th of September that Macchiarini is now officially indicted for aggravated assault in relation to the three trachea transplant that he performed in Sweden, all three of which ended with the patient dying a painful death, with some significant suffering as a result of undergoing these scientifically completely unsound, highly experimental interventions that Macchiarini deliberately exposed them to. What a lot of uh, us hope, at least in the sceptical community, but a lot of people in the international scientific communities as well, is for the prosecutor to be more thorough in choosing the, the expert witnesses this time because the question remains as to how scientific and medical misconduct of this level could be left unpunished the first time, or not even recognised or realised in a lot of other countries where he did his wrongdoings. But of course, we don't know how long this takes, we don't know anything really, only that this is now a new case, a new court case that is to be watched. Not a reopening of the manslaughter thing that he got off the hook with and of course as the case develops we'll be giving you updates here but we have high hopes
1: definitely yes <laughs> yeah for
0: justice to be served
1: <laughs> yeah because this guy he he failed his patients. that's just how it is <laughs>
0: he failed his patients. he failed science he failed medicine everything so yeah he, he was basically probably for a while it was um often mentioned regarding his work That uh, if it goes well and if it comes out as expected, then he might end up getting the Nobel Prize uh, in medicine, which is pretty ironic when you think of uh, the fact that uh, he did this under the flag of the Karolinska Institute. Mm-hmm. yeah which is uh <laughs> affiliated with the noble committee, but uh then uh, as a result of of his his issues, basically the leadership of Karolinska Institute was uh dismissed almost completely
1: yeah yeah and it's it's something that really like we all hope that he'll be taken to justice because yeah, yeah. it's it's just depressing to think about the suffering of of the people that's right that he caused. Shall I tell you something a bit uplifting?
0: <laughs> okay, yes please, yes please, yes please.
1: <laughs> so, did you know that I actually fell into the trap of a pseudoscientific idea when I was about 17?
0: No, tell me more about it.
1: That's not the uplifting thing
0: though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I figured that much.
1: <laughs> yeah, so what what, ha- what happened was that I like had grown a bit, I wasn't um, feeling super well physically. Mm-hmm. And the thing was that um, that was exactly the time where I received the second hpv shot okay and my mom did some research and she actually saw like hmm here are a lot of people complaining about the hpv vaccine and they're saying like people actually died and everything like that and we were of course like worried (laughs) didn't do the third shot for the time being then later discovered that it was actually all fabricated (laughs) yeah and then of course i did the third um shot so that i was completely immunized and that was good because um the hpv vaccine is actually even better than thought, at lowering risk of cervical cancer. Okay. Yeah, so um, there was a study done of uh, 1.7 million girls, mm-hmm. and before that, they already knew that the vaccine can protect against human papillomavirus infection, genital warts, and other unpleasant things. <laughs> yeah. But now they also have definite evidence that it actually prevents invasive cervical cancer, and that's awesome.
0: <laughs> it's. I mean, it has been known to prevent that kind of cancer as well right so it's is it like um new evidence that it does yes or, yeah
1: so they suspected that it that it would help somehow <laughs> but now they have okay. evidence that it actually helps in the whole population okay so the whole in the, in the whole population the the cases of cervical cancer went down for the age group that they started um, the vaccine about and okay. if i remember like they started with the vaccines about Um, 2006 or something around the age of like young women Uh and here you can see that the young age is important Um, the immunization should or like works better if it's done before the person is actually exposed to HPV through like sexual activity so they say Maybe before the age of 17 would be good, <laughs> yeah. but of course it can also not hurt if you, like it never hurts to receive that, but it's, it's good if it's done before, um, like b- between 17 to 30 or even before 17.
0: Yeah. So this is why it's it's usually done with, the, with young girls, like 13 or yeah, 14 years. Exactly. Age. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. 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 Yeah.
1: And um cervical cancer
0: Who knows when they will start, yeah.
1: <laughs> well I'm a teacher, I won't tell you anything. <laughs> <laughs> okay. But um like coming back to actually like the serious topic of that is that yeah, yeah. cervical cancer kills more than two hundred and fifty thousand women every year. Mm. And I have to say it's it's awesome that we have vaccine against that that Mm -hmm. helps that protects and something people always forget is guys can and should also get the vaccine (laughs) it's not only cervical cancer it protects from
0: yeah yeah. yeah. like
1: you don't need to have a cervix to be protected against hpv (laughs) (laughs)
0: yeah and the other thing is it's it's like with every other vaccine if you yourself are vaccinated against something then it means that you will not transmit that disease to the other person yeah exactly might not be.
1: but like genital warts are also something that that uh, boys shouldn't have like because it's yeah
0: of course painful
1: that's- so <laughs> yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah but that's the good study that i wanted to talk about um uh, because it's mm-hmm. just very uplifting of what medicine and science can do
0: <laughs> yeah yeah uh, did the researchers put an actual number, I mean, a percentage of uh, how effective it is in avoiding cervical cancer?
1: They did. What they said is if you have received the vaccine before the age of um, 17, then your risk is already reduced by 88%.
0: Wow. So okay.
1: it's that's a high incentive, I would say.
0: <laughs> that is a very high incentive. Okay. That's what I was after. That's very good. Well, I'm afraid the next news item is not that uplifting. It's a little bit strange. So, since the Paris Accord was uh, signed by 196 countries starting in uh, 2016, mitigating climate change has been one of the most important challenges for countries across the globe, right? Yeah. And think about it adhering to those plans for keeping the global temperature increase uh, within two degrees Celsius above pre industrial levels obviously has very serious implications to how our industries and ultimately our our whole economies operate. So there is a little bit of push here, a bit of cheating with the numbers there, and everybody tries to get through this with obviously minimal effort. But sacrifices need to be made, and and now that the pandemic seems to provide a good opportunity to rethink stuff in order to rebuild our collapsed global economy on a much greener basis, as they usually say, the politicians. But apparently, magic with numbers has not gone out of fashion. (laughs) The European Parliament made a very bold and ambitious political step of declaring a climate emergency back in November 2019 and changed the original target of 40% greenhouse gas reduction by 2030 to an ambitious 55% in order to ensure climate neutrality by 2050. Now, back then, they had absolutely no idea that a pandemic was coming, that that would completely rewrite everything now countries and the eu as well are considering ways to kickstart economies that have or are on the verge of collapsing so obviously the rhetoric is that this will be an opportunity to think about innovation and climate-friendly new solutions etc etc but just in case it doesn't work out we need a plan b of course without having to back down from our ambitious plan uh, Which would, of course, politically speaking, be completely ill advised. So, how about a bit of creative accounting? with uh, carbon dioxide levels
1: (laughs) you can see my feel my skeptical laugh i think (laughs) oh yeah, yeah yeah
0: there is a document released by the european commission in the middle of september that is basically an amended proposal for the ep the european parliament and the council of europe on establishing the framework for achieving climate neutrality and amending the european climate law so far so good right however as it has been spotted by many And consequently criticized, of course, uh, the previously announced new target of 55% by 2030 has now been changed to, and I quote, at least 50 and towards 55%. But the devil, as usual, is in the details. Because now, instead of an actual 50-55% to 55% decrease in emissions, compared to our 1990 levels of course, the proposal also includes removal of carbon dioxide from the atmosphere by so-called carbon sinks. Uh, does that ring a bell? That that concept, the carbon sinks?
1: Um, not completely, but I think I like it's, it's just because it's a ger- different vocabulary in German. I think.
0: Ah, okay. So I know it's uh, forests and and soils and uh, things that can basically absorb, thus remove carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. I rarely say this, but <laughs> I agree with Greenpeace <laughs> who said this is basically cheating. It's an accounting trick with carbon dioxide. It basically means we're back to almost as if the change to 55 from 40% had never happened. Not quite, but but still is significant. Some experts and NGOs think the carbon sinks are responsible for nearly 5% of reduction of carbon dioxide levels. If you put that next to the 50 to 55% decrease in carbon dioxide emissions which we all know means closer to 50, mm. <laughs> if they felt strongly enough about it to put it in the document, then we're down to an actual emission decrease of no more than 45 to 48%, 50% at best. But there are two more problems with the, with the whole concept of uh, taking into account these carbon sinks. One is that in the last decade or so, as even EU Commission Vice President in charge of the EU Green Deal, Franz Timmermans, admitted, the volume of forests and soils acting as carbon sinks have been shrinking. And without making sure this trend changes, it's really unwise to include them in long-term calculations, right? (laughs) Definitely. (laughs) Not to talk about the fact that the capacity of these carbon sinks cannot be determined for a single continent because there are no walls between continents (laughs) going all the way up. Due to the nature of the gases, they can only be properly accounted for in global calculations that include the atmosphere as a whole. Because it's a whole. It's like there is this joke, you know, that if you want to divide a restaurant, which is in one large area to a smoking and a non-smoking part, that's the same thing as trying to divide an open pool into the one that you piss in and the one that you don't piss in. <laughs> yes. it's, it's it's basically the same thing. Yeah. But the other problem <laughs> with this um, accounting trick, which is even worse, is that in the original target set by the Paris Accord, global carbon sinks have already been added to the, to the equations.
1: So it's double.
0: So adding, the, <laughs> Yes. So adding them to the EU's own calculations again is like double taxation. Not good. Shouldn't do that. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, and it's also so, like you should be harder on yourself as the EU.
0: exactly exactly but of course there are a lot of uh, different directions from where the eu legislators are being pushed of course they want to make realistic changes they don't don't want to set goals that they would not be able to achieve of course so it's a political game as well but still it's still something you shouldn't do yeah so since this is still only a proposal this can be changed if not before then when it hits the floor of the european parliament so I would urge everyone to try contacting your MEPs and make them understand that this is really not cool. See what I did there? Not cool? (laughs) (laughs) Okay, never mind. Uh, Anyhow, in my opinion, the EU should still be ambitious and build on the massive innovative capacities of its citizens to work towards those goals announced in November. Those were very good goals. I really applauded them, uh, along with a lot of others. Uh, let us set a good example for the rest of the world. Something that we can be proud of. Not this creative, semi-cheating thing that sends all the wrong messages to the rest of the world about uh, creative accounting.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yes, and I think that's that's very important. And I know we already talked a lot about awards being given out, like the Ockham Award and mm-hmm. Tin Hat golden fall hat and the cross of merit the german one but i still have an award i want to tell you about and the listeners okay because Mm -hmm. the dutch cancer society will receive the or already received the maester Kakadoris prize (laughs) which what's that yeah that's um something you could probably compare to the rusty razor but on a quackery level I couldn't find out what kakadores actually means. <laughs> okay. Um, so if you're listening to this and you're Dutch, please tell me because I, I tried to Google it. I'm beginning to assume that it's a onomatopoetic term. Because <laughs> okay. in, in German "kak" means poop, <laughs> so it could yeah. be related in to Hungarian,
0: that. In Hungarian "kakor" means means poop as well. Yeah, so uh, it, it yeah. could be ha- yeah. having
1: to do something with that. Okay. But yeah, please please uh, write too. us if you know where the name uh, came from etymologically. <laughs> and this prize is from or given out by the tegen de the Dutch, nicely
0: done. Thank
1: you. The Dutch Association Against Quackery mm-hmm. and the Dutch Cancer Society received this award because they published question- questionable statements on complementary care for cancer on their website, mm-hmm. and they have misleading information there about acupuncture and other so-called alternative medicine, like. Therapeutic touch. Mm -hmm. And the Dutch Skeptic Society had, like, they they felt that the Dutch Cancer Society apparently was unconcerned about the harm this could cause to cancer patients. Mm -hmm. And the society replied by stating that their information about complementary care is to promote a better quality of life. But they also say that they strongly advise to consult your regular physician first so Ugh. they did reply to that but it's still like why include it at all
0: <laughs> at least they're not suing Yep,
1: exactly <laughs> but, but yeah Yet. we have to say it's it's a well-deserved price for promoting um so-called alternative medicine or scam as edzer ernst uh calls that and yeah um yeah thank you for this uh for handing out the price <laughs> <laughs>
0: Okay, you did it again. Nice, nice, very nice.
1: (laughs) Polishing my Dutch. (laughs) Yeah,
0: good. Okay. So, and uh, yeah, one of the very active members of uh, that organization, the the Dutch uh, Association for Against Quackery is uh, the aforementioned Catherine de Jong as well. Hmm. Yes. And I think that is the oldest ever skeptical organization in Europe. Yes, I heard that too. It's very cool. Yes, actually. it is. Okay, thank you very much, Anika. And I think that has been all that uh, we could fit in this show. So before we go, I'd like to say goodbye with a quote. And it's from a Danish physicist and Nobel laureate, Niels Bohr. And I would, uh, I would love to know how to pronounce his name. Uh, Bohr? <laughs> Or bore or I don't know. But <laughs> I think we all know whom I'm talking about. So the quote is Physics is to be regarded not so much as the study of something a priori given, but rather as the development of methods of ordering and surveying human experience. In this respect, our task must be to account for such experience in a manner independent of individual subjective judgment and therefore objective in the sense that it can be unambiguously communicated in ordinary human language. So, that was Niels Bohr.
1: And it totally fits to the conversation we had about science communication before, doesn't it?
0: Oh, exactly. And I didn't even even know when I found the quote that this would be the case. Never mind. Onika, thank you very much for joining me today. Thank you. (laughs) I'd like to thank our listeners as well for tuning in. Please keep doing so. And until next week, when hopefully Pontus will be back to join us, goodbye. Tschüss. Bis If you have a local event or organisation to promote, please don't hesitate to let us know, as we are more than happy to help. All music in the programme was written and performed by Keisha J. Gray and George Shrub and is used with their permission. Please check out our webpage at theesp.eu, follow us on Twitter at espodcast underscore eu and like us on Facebook. I don't know how you can believe